Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Tooled Up Education is proud to announce that our Researcher of the Month for August is Stephanie U, who's pursuing her PhD under the supervision of Dr. Duncan Astle at the University of Cambridge's MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit as a Gates Cambridge Scholar. She graduated from Emory University with degrees in neuroscience and ethics. As the 2014-15 Bobby Jones Fellow, she completed her MPhil in behavioral and neural sciences at St. Andrews, and she's been engaged in exploratory clinical research at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Neuroscience and Society and the Center for Autism Research at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Her primary interests lie in the multidimensional nature of mental health outcomes, risk profiles, and resilience as well as the ethical, social, and legal implications of human neuroscience research. Her work, identifying different profiles of young people who self-harm and their respective risk factors across development, have been featured on multiple media channels. Alongside her PhD, she's been involved with the Global Neuroethics Summit to promote and engage cross-cultural collaborations, and she's currently investigating dimensions of adversity and resilience at the neural behavioural as well as cognitive and mental health levels in children with the hope to better inform interventions and policies targeting positive development and well-being. Well, wow. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. That's a very impressive biography. You must have very (laughs) proud parents. (laughs) Oh, one hopes. (laughs) (laughs) And tell us, it must be such a prestigious title to be the Gates Cambridge Scholar. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's quite an unexpected honor. And I'm sure we hear that a lot with the imposter syndrome that's very prevalent. But yeah, it's an amazing community to be a part of. And you just meet such incredible peers as well as alumni who have been part of this group. So it's been quite the adventure. And so your undergraduate degree, tell us a little bit about how you moved into the position you're in now. Sure. Yeah, I actually went to Emory University thinking I'd pursue law school. I was very devoted to or thought I was very devoted to becoming a lawyer. And I actually took one biology course, met several Tibetan monks, ended up tutoring those Tibetan monks throughout my education, became very good friends with them, and then started contemplating the human mind. And then that's actually how I was introduced to neuroscience as a field. And then from there, with a lot of the influence from my monk friends, as well as some advisors who I am still very close with, we got very interested in neuroethics as a field. And then I just kind of diverged from there. My path was anything but linear. And so it's been quite a roller coaster to get to this PhD now investigating this area within neuroscience. I feel like there's a book in there about oh. <laughs> your uh, a life story that sounds terribly interesting. So Stephanie, we're talking today really about a paper that came to our notice that's just been published. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So within Dr. Duncan Astle's lab, my supervisor, we are ultimately or just very broadly interested in child and brain development as a whole. And one area that we realized that was quite difficult was that we are having a lot of challenges predicting mental health outcomes like self-harm. And self-harm, unfortunately, is an extremely prevalent issue in adolescents worldwide. And yet, 
despite the notable growth in self-harm research, we haven't been able to accurately predict this outcome. So that was our main goal, seeing that we are lacking in this particular area. And also in consideration of the fact that the current mechanism to support young people who self-harm is very much overwhelmed, right? A lot of the resources are lacking and the current model that we have is that we wait until difficulties escalate and then respond reactively. And so we wanted to further understand what the risk factors may be so that we can know who is most vulnerable and then act proactively instead. And then on top of that, we recognize that there may be multiple different types of young people who self-harm and thus with different predictive risk factors. And that's kind of what really motivated this research. Because we already sort of knew that teenage girls, I think, are much more likely to self-harm, that it's an issue amongst particular groups. So what is it that has excited you about the contribution that this paper makes to that general understanding of self-harm? I think what really excites me is that we've taken on this profile approach. So a lot of the past research on self-harm has been based upon clinical samples, right? And when we actually look at the prevalence rates, the majority of young people who self-harm actually don't present to clinical services. And so in that regard, when we consider a lot of the theories that have been proposed underlying self-harm, those theories may not actually be as applicable or representative of the greater or the larger majority of those who do engage in these behaviors. And so by applying this more, I guess, profile approach where we're trying to capture the nuanced nature of the young people who do self-harm, and then identify their respective risk factors, I think this provides a better understanding and hopefully a more comprehensive approach to further identifying risk factors at a longitudinal scale. So I think the paper identified two subgroups of teens who self-harmed and two distinct developmental pathways. So can you describe these to us? Tell us a little bit about their characteristics and about the potential for predicting self-harm even before it happens. For example, it was quite striking that you talk about significant risk factors present as early as age five. So there's a lot in that question, but let's talk about those subgroups first. Yeah, no, of course. So just to kind of give an overview to hopefully clarify a few things, we used the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a large national birth cohort study uh, carried out in the UK and that is still ongoing where these researchers have collected a whole host of behavioral, social, cognitive, uh, mental health data on, I think, almost 19,000 participants starting out when they were nine months old and have been collecting, collecting data sweeps across several years. And so what we were able to do was when self-harming was first asked about at age 14, we were able to see if there would be emotional, behavioral, mental health profiles or subgroups of young people who self-harm. And what we found was that there seemed to be two distinct clusters based on emotional, behavioral, mental health characteristics, where one subgroup had a long history of what we term psychopathology, where they had a lot of emotional and behavioral problems starting from age five, but also reported lower or poor mental health at the age of 14. And this subgroup had a lot of difficulties controlling their emotions. And that was one of the strongest risk factors that we identified starting from age five years old. And 
even up to nine years earlier, we were seeing that these individuals were between 30 to 50% more likely to self-harm at age 14 if they had experienced these emotional regulation difficulties, as well as being a victim of bullying, where even three years prior to self-harm being reported, these individuals were 30% more likely to self-harm if they had been bullied relative to matched controls. Now, the second group that we found was actually the very surprising group where we did not expect to identify because the first group arguably fits the expected profile of one who may be at risk for this kind of mental health difficulty. But the second group, much larger in size, I think about three times the size of the first group, they didn't really show any mental health difficulties per se or emotional behavioral problems, unlike their group one counterparts. And so they didn't have an obvious history of psychopathology and the risk factors emerged much later as they entered adolescence, where they were 20% more likely to self-harm if they had a low support group, uh, 10% more likely to self-harm if they engage in risky behaviors, and also 10% more likely to self-harm if they expressed concern about the feelings of others or their peers before they reported self-harming. And just listening to what you said about the risk factors of sort of emotional regulation difficulties at an early age, it's going to be so difficult for people to think about that as anything other than a normal issue at age five, that children are having difficulty controlling their emotion. It's not an easy predictor, is it? No, yeah, I think that's very correct. And tell us what role low self-esteem is playing in the likelihood of self-harming. I think your paper looked at that. Yeah, so we looked at it as a risk factor. And this was interesting in that low self-esteem was a shared risk factor between the two groups. And young people who experience low self-esteem across both groups were 60 to 80% more likely to self-harm compared to, again, the matched controls. And you know, we didn't dive too deep into the theory here, but I think this has been a very common risk factor for poor mental health as a whole. And it is potentially, you know, it's a trait that's associated with things like depression, anxiety, and just overall, you know, well-being difficulties. And perhaps this may contribute to low self-worth, which could fuel more feelings of despair and just poor mental health that may in fact contribute to these unfortunate outlets. And what differences, if any, did you see in terms of gender? So for our study, we actually did not assess the differences because in our sample of young people who self-harm, we saw between 70 to 77% were girls versus boys. So if we were to do a gender split, it would have, I think, caused a lot of statistical power issues. So we weren't able to investigate that directly, but we did see that a large percentage or the majority of those who do self or the young people who self-harm were girls, like the prior research has shown. And were there any indications or anything interesting about parenting styles, home environment that you could pull out? Yeah. So through our analysis, we were able to, I won't go into the details here with our, like our methods per se, but we were able to look at a whole host of potential variables and risk factors that included um, home environment. And the only risk factors that did come out as significant were for the smaller subgroup where parental well-being and mental health seemed to be also a contributing risk factor 
for a self-harm outcome where I think the group one, the smaller subgroup, their parents did report more feelings of depression and poor mental health when the children were younger. And that came out as a significant risk factor, but only for that subgroup. And that particular subgroup is the subgroup. Remind me that it was the early signs weren't really there as much as the other group. No, sorry. That was the group that did have early signs or stronger early signs. Oh, I see. And also fit the profile that reflects, I guess, what one would expect to be at higher risk for self-harming. Understood. Now, the paper also highlights that teacher training is critical in dealing with identifying and preventing self-harm. But I'm interested in sort of the detail around that. What do you think that training really ought to cover? Yeah, I think we mentioned this because we see that teachers are often the first responders to self-harm where, you know, one will be first exposed from, I guess, the teacher role in a school setting. And I think it's extremely difficult to figure out how best to respond to this when there isn't proper training in terms of, you know, how do we inquire about it? How do we, you know, talk about it in such a way that won't cause more anxiety or, you know, feelings of judgment or an unsafe space. And I think that is where we were saying we need to compile resources for teachers to also understand how best to approach someone that may be exhibiting signs of self-harming. And what do you think schools could be doing at sort of pivotal points such as transition into school settings? Do you think it's a clever idea to screen children in terms of, is there any particular tools that schools could use to sort of, in terms of early intervention, early prevention and identification? Sure. Yeah. I think having early screening measures for mental health overall is not a bad idea. Granted, again, you know, I come from the researcher side of things, but just seeing that even for our smaller subgroup who had strong early risk factors and a long history of behavioral, emotional, and mental health difficulties, things like emotion regulation, right? And I, I know you did mention how this may be difficult to identify from an early age, but just having school programs that help with emotional control, problem solving, things like that, in addition to just early screening measures to get a sense of how uh, kids are even feeling at that age, I think it can provide a much more comprehensive approach to implementing just school-wide programs from an early stage onwards. And so that will hopefully provide more coping and preventative mechanisms from these kinds of mental health difficulties. I think the key word is coping, isn't it? We have to teach young people about emotional regulation, emotional literacy, and also what coping looks and feels like and modeling it and talking about it and just raising it. Absolutely. And making sure that children obviously are growing up both in a domestic environment, but also an educational setting that feels safe, where they are able to express and talk about their emotions. As you mentioned that word safe earlier on, I think that's a very important word to underline. Yeah, no, definitely. And I just think coping mechanisms are important to really emphasize as well, because it is likely that we're not going to be living conflict-free lives, right? No matter how many programs are in place, unfortunately. And so being able to understand that there may be conflicts that arise, but understanding how one can cope both individually and with the support of one's peers and other resources, I think could be pivotal. 
Now, I think the paper noted again, and this is something that has been known before, but there is a strong link between bullying and self-harm. And there are now a number of evidence-based anti-bullying interventions that could and should be implemented in schools. The paper references that point. Can you tell us what interventions you would recommend or that you're aware of that could and should have a strong impact? Sure, yeah. So I know that even at a policy level, there have been a lot of policies and laws that have been passed to try to create more anti-bullying environments in schools and that people are trialing different intervention methods. And you know, you hear a lot about schools showing videos and lectures to students and trying to you know, see, like, or I guess provide these aids of what bullying is. But one program that really stuck out to me was, I think it's Kiva, it's a Finnish-based program where Finnish group had started this, where they have taken on a whole school approach, relying on social cognitive theory, where you know, they implement rules school-wide, but they also train teachers and methods for handling the bullying as well as conflict resolution strategies, but also tries to actually change the attitude of classmates in terms of, you know, how they perceive bullying, the motivations that underlie it, and why participating in it or just letting it happen is also not okay. So it's kind of Rather than just, you know, showing some videos and lectures to students, it's like engaging the whole school to kind of promote this anti-bullying behavior and attitude. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I love the way it's everyone's job rather than maybe one person in the school. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Destigmatization of self-harm is critical. What's going on that you're aware of in this area? Yeah, this is, I think it's a very <laughs> challenging thing, but I think in today's day and age too, we are just being a lot more open about mental health, right? Just talking about it more. And even, you know, with the Olympics, with Simone Biles, you know, being in America, this is a huge uh, deal for us as we see this amazing gymnast stepping back in consideration of her own mental health and recognizing that mental health can be as debilitating as physical health problems, Right. And so I think there is this effort as people are trying to be more open and, again, creating safer spaces to talk about these kinds of mental health challenges in a way that won't cause so much anxiety and judgment. That being said, you know, I, I can't speak to whether or not there are just formal um, programs, but I do think there is more a population movement here. And people are trying to be more effortful in making sure that when talking about things like self-harm, it's not so much responding in such a way that can be so triggering, but trying to find the right resources and also providing an open and safe space to actually talk about these things to work through it. And you note, I think, in the paper that clinical services for self-harm are mainly responsive rather than preventative. Is there anything in particular you'd like to see change there? Do you think that medical uh, clinicians are sort of, you know, keeping abreast of the recent research and, and thinking about, you know, reading papers like yours? Yeah, I think this is where it really, again, highlights for me the multidimensional nature of just mental health outcomes like self-harm. And with that, I think it really reflects the need to have also a multidisciplinary team of experts and professionals, whether it be you know, from the research or the clinical side, but also education specialists there and policymakers and economists, right, to try to come together 
to create more resources as well, because the truth of the matter is a large proportion of young people who self-harm do not seek clinical help, right? They don't go to the hospital. And so a lot of the times they're almost missed or hidden. And this highlights what I've referred to as the tip of the iceberg problem of self-harm. And so with that, I think it is very important for researchers, clinicians, and other you know, experts and professionals, and even those in the community to work together to try to create a more multidisciplinary approach to capture this multidimensional nature of self-harm. Now, what is the link between self-harm and sleep? Sleep and sleep deprivation and quality of sleep, it seems to be coming up all the time across many mental health studies. So it's really interesting. And do you think sleep interventions could be beneficial in preventing future self-harm? Yeah, no, this was really interesting for us to find as well. I actually <laughs> included more sleep variables because of the very big growth of research on sleep studies and mood disorders and emotion regulation problems. And it was interesting to see that sleep difficulties was also a shared risk factor for both of our subgroups that we found. And speaking to the link, you know, we can't say for sure as we didn't directly study it, but it seems that there is some sort of association where sleep problems have been identified for uh, being linked to things like anxiety and depression. And I think sleep interventions just as a whole for mental health as a whole, in addition to physical health, could be critical. So it's definitely an area, I think, for everyone to be much more mindful of and interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Another area that everyone's always talking about is social media. And mm -hmm. I just wondered, you know, in the situation you're in with this research interest, what you know about the role, if any, between social media and self-harm. Yeah, so we try to include some social media variables in here and none of them came out. And granted, we did take on a very conservative approach with our methods, but there has been a lot of talk, I think, with how social media creates a whole host of mental health challenges as well, but also provides connection and et cetera. So it, it swings both ways. But one thing that comes to mind and that I have heard about is this challenge of social transmission. And it could very well be, again, you know, I, I want to say that I haven't researched this directly, nor have, been, nor have I seen direct research per se on this, but exposure to self-harm has been associated with adolescent self-harm, right? And so that is something that other researchers have noted where if someone presents, it's worthwhile to ask if they have anyone else around them that is self-harming. And it is very likely that social media could I guess, open more clusters of vulnerabilities as well, where people talk about it in that way, or there's just some sort of social transmission effect happening here. Or on top of that, there is a lot of cyberbullying with social media and a lot of anxieties that have arisen from it. But I do think that this requires more research for sure. And also in such a way where we try to capture the complexities of social media too, because I think that's actually very difficult for researchers today. Absolutely. Now, Stephanie, tell us what's the sort of next step beyond this paper? Is there going to be another round of research? Are you going to be investigating something else in a bit more detail? What's next for you? Yeah, so I am actually investigating a little bit something more something else that is. Um, but my next project is trying to explore adversity and how different domains of adversity may impact brain and child development in different groups of children. Again, taking on this more profile approach 
to see if we like can identify different forms of adversity leading to different mental health outcomes, both in the behavioral and neural levels. And so I think that's where my next goal is. So you'll literally be applying this sort of interesting profile methodology in, in another area. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's still linked quite a bit, seeing that early experiences of adversity have definitely been tied with mental health outcomes like self-harm. But I'm just trying to go into the dimensions of adversity and see if we can identify more or less resilient profiles or uh, lack thereof. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Quite clearly, you are <laughs> going to have a glittering career and uh, you're already having a glittering career. And we are very excited to be connected with you through Tool.Dot. We want to tell everyone about your research and keep an eye on all of the lovely work that you produce with some fantastic colleagues. So thank you so much for joining me, Stephanie. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kathy, and for inviting me to be here today. It's quite the honor, especially with all of the inspiring work that you all do. Thank you so much. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.